This is the Melbourne Press Club, where we cover the news for those who make the news their business. I'm Michael Rowland, the club's vice president, and in this podcast, we bring you a rebroadcast of our monthly speaker events for listening on the go. Please enjoy this month's episode. Uh, for most of you in the room, our guest of honour certainly needs no introduction, as they say. Um, Sally McManus has been Secretary of the ACTU since 2017 and is the first woman to hold the position in the 90-year history of the Council. Um, she comes to perhaps the most important role in the union movement after a lifetime of social justice activism. Uh, that activism began or found its focus when Sally was president of the Student Union at Macquarie University. An early champion of environmental causes, according to our colleague Gay Alcorn at The Guardian, um, she succeeded in abolishing plastic crockery and cutlery in the student cafeteria, introduced uh, uh, composting to the campus and had smoking banned from the student bar. Should have happened years earlier. Um, during a 21-year career with the Australian Services Union, Sally rose to become New South Wales State Secretary uh, and won a landmark equal wage, equal wage case for 150,000 of the lowest paid social and community workers. Uh, soon after her appointment to the ACTU, Peter Dutton branded her a lunatic, a badge that I think would be worn with pride by many. <clears throat> uh, Sally is also a dedicated computer gamer uh, who describes herself as the definition of the total gamer. So those of you in the zone uh, will need to talk to her about that. Um, she's also a bit of an investigative journalist, uh, having FOI'd the letters and emails exposing the extent of collusion between the big banks and the then and then treasurer Scott Morrison on the eve of the announcement of the Banking Royal Commission in late 2017. Uh, more on that soon, I am sure. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sally McManus. Thank you, Mark. I think I really need to join the MEAA now, don't I? Yeah. I want to pay... <laughs> You're going to give me a membership form, did you say? Um, I want to pay my respects to the people of the Kulin Nation, uh, the traditional owners of the land, and their, their elders past, present and emerging. Uh, thanks for inviting me to speak uh, here at the Melbourne Press Club. As you know, I've written a little red book on fairness, uh, uh, published by Melbourne University Press. Thank you. Um, to Melbourne University Press. I think fairness is going to be a central theme, not just of the election campaign, but I think it's going to be a theme here in Australia and in various expressions across the world for quite a while. But in Australia, we actually have a unique relationship with fairness. It's a value we hold dear, a single yardstick by which we measure ourselves and our leaders. In America, they talk about freedom, in England, they talk about resolve and perseverance. They would, wouldn't they? Resolve and perseverance. All good qualities, I'm sure. But in Australia, nothing comes before the fair go. If you ever doubt how much Australians care about fairness and equal treatment, I'd invite you to attend a sports match and pay special attention to the comments directed at the referee. Since I'm in Melbourne, I should say umpire. If a referee ever becomes truly, deeply one-sided at a match, regardless of the sport or the code, chaos would ensure. 
the players and the fans would lose faith not just in the rules of the game, but in the game itself. Our economic and political system is perilously close to that chaos and to losing people's faith. Scott Morrison continues to make calls that only favour the big end of town and to write the rules that put them ahead of the rest of us. And the result? Inequality, record low wage growth, services starved of funds, and a splintering of the vote to micro-right parties, opportunists and cynical peddlers of cheap nationalism. Many people are losing faith, not just in Scott Morrison or political parties, but in the institution of government itself. It amazes me that even as the din of the crowd grows louder, members of the Morrison government and conservative commentators continue to deny we've got a problem with inequality. They simply refuse to even hear what people are saying. Just as they deny humans have created climate change, they cannot admit that inequality is a problem because the consequences of doing so would require them to take action that cannot be accommodated within their worldview. Their worldview says the free market is always good, cannot be faulted, and never causes harm. And if it does, then on balance, it does more good than harm. In their world, the market always makes the right call and the market writes the rules. It's for the same reason Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg have an unshakable belief that corporate tax cuts will trickle down to us as pay rises. As the United States example shows, they are wrong. But Morrison and Frydenberg, just as Malcolm Turnbull before them, declared this to be Economics 101. For the Treasurer, two weeks ago, it was faith in the invisible hand of capitalism. For the rest of us, not under the fast-fading neoliberal spell, this seems like a bizarre cult that demands total and unquestioning adherence of its followers. They cannot accept that results of 40 years of the neoliberal experiment. Privatisation hasn't always led to the fantastic array of choice cheap prices, efficient delivery of services that we were all promised. Often it's led to an erosion of services, a proliferation of rent seeking, the unjust enrichment of a small and elite group of business owners, and a fundamental decline in the quality of life available to the rest of us. The denial of working people's rights and the suppression of unions that commenced under John Howard has led to a rise in insecure work, in low wage growth. These policies have seen workers' share of the GDP diminish to near 50-year lows. Now inequality is at a 70-plus year high. The wealthiest 1% of Australians owns more wealth than the bottom 70% of all other Australians combined. But just like they do with climate change, the Morrison government rejects these truths. They cannot accept that the economic cult they have followed for so many years is not just fallible, but it's failing before their eyes. And just like climate change, there's a point where people's own experience speaks far louder than any economic jargon, selective statistics, or confected arguments. No one can be convinced after weeks of 40 degree heat, fish kills and bushfires, catastrophic floods, melting polar ice caps, that climate change is not a human-made crisis. And we cannot be convinced that inequality is not real or increasing when we see CEOs awarded obscene salaries and bonuses 
while they refuse to give us pay rises that even keep up with the cost of living. We are feeling the consequences of five years of no real wage growth at a time of, of where profits are up. People have been cutting into their savings. People have less to spend. This is not just a problem for retail sales, but a problem for the quality of life for most Australians. Stagnant wage growth means bills can't be paid on time. Kids don't get taken out to movies or to the city on the weekend. The car doesn't get filled up until the light comes on. Being told to wait for pay rises to trickle down just doesn't cut it anymore. Working people have also seen once secure jobs converted to contract, casual, ABN jobs in our own workplaces. We see our cities full of riders on bikes delivering food. We watch young people struggle to find permanent jobs that were readily available 30 years ago. To us, the insistence of government ministers and certain business groups that insecure work is not a problem seems to come from another world. And it's the same with tax. Last year, one third of Australia's biggest companies paid no tax. 62 people made a million dollars, yet paid no tax, not even the Medicare levy. But, people, but working people pay tax. We pay tax. We see our schools and our hospitals and aged care systems struggling, pushed to breaking, and sometimes outright failing. No wonder people just do not believe it when we are told um, that companies should pay even less tax. But then I wonder if they, Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, many business leaders, even care about inequality or unfairness. Let's face it, neoliberalism has delivered for them and they're doing extraordinarily well. What is clear to me is that with growing inequality, we're actually living in different worlds. Their experience of life is not like ours. Could it be that they're not concerned the minimum wage is only $37,000 a year because they don't actually have any mates or neighbours who are paid award wages? Could it be they do not understand what insecure work is like because their only experience of job insecurity is resigning from politics to take well-paid appointments or lucrative lobbying gigs with the big end of town? Just like CEOs are guaranteed golden parachutes no matter how badly they stuff up, just like their bonus flow, bonuses flow regardless of performance. And we see, despite the Bank Royal Commission finding hundreds of thousands of possible criminal charges, there are limited referrals to the DPP or the police in stark contrast to the treatment of unions. In fact, one wonders if it will be just business as usual for the banks. They see us, working people, as something to be examined in focus groups until they find a line that resonates. No wonder they've spent hundreds of millions of taxpayers' dollars on ads, and yet the coalition is st still seen as out of touch, and it's because they are. We know we've been sold stuff and not genuinely listened to. And I don't want to talk just about the morality of this. I want to talk about the possible consequences. Working people in Australia know we can do better. Those of us who have lived here for more than 30 years remember a more egalitarian society. Economic divisions existed, but not to the extent we see them today. The fact there is now a class of people who don't even see us is new. The same thing is happening in France, and the unseen people are making sure you cannot miss them in their yellow vests. The same thing is happening in the US, where the unseen people have been part of electing Trump, in the UK with Brexit and elsewhere with the rise of the extreme right. 
We are now seeing a menagerie of individuals and parties on the right of politics. They're all trying to take advantage of the unseen, the fed up. Many of the people who become invisible to the moneyed elites in the coalition and big business are not necessarily racist or extreme. They are angry that the country they thought they lived in, where every generation had a better life, where young people could buy a house and get a job, has been taken away from them. Here opens a huge expectation gap. The gap in Australia is larger than elsewhere, as our promise of a fair go was much larger. And it was more tangible in people's lived experiences. People will look for explanations, and some self-interested and cynical politicians will fill it with fear and misdirected blame, stoking division, prejudice and hate in pursuit of their own self-interests. The Australian Union movement stands between Australia and the unhappy events we see unfolding across the world. We see the problems and we have proposals to fix them. We will not stay silent about the dangers of inequality, of work insecurity and of political disillusionment. Trying to shoot us, the messenger, will not fix the problem and it will just open up new ones. This has been the, pro the approach of the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison government. They think the more they can delegitimise what we say and do, the better for them. Unfortunately, there are some in the business community who also think the same. But it's been the trade union movement that's made our country more equal and fairer. And we've done this by insisting on rules for fairness. We've had to fight for them and eventually they became law, Medicare, superannuation, safety, working hours, wages. And we've done this in a way that aligns with our principles about looking after each other and giving everyone a fair go. We want a more friendly, cohesive, generous and equal country where we respect each other, where every generation can be confident and look forward to something better, where working people have dignity, equality and respect. And I believe this is what the majority of Australians want. We want a fairer share of the wealth being created, pay rises, greater job security, a fair tax system. When people know they're sharing in the growth, sharing in the wealth created, everyone benefits. This is good for business and it's good for our democracy. When people are denied their fair share, we become more divided, more separate, more suspicious. People feel either angry or hopeless. Inequality, greed, unfairness, misdirected blame, this all holds us back. But we in the union movement believe in the fair go. We can't turn around inequality in Australia without a strong union movement. It's time for the powerful, for politicians to work with us for a fairer country. It's, if change is not brought about through active government action, people will give up on government's capacity to actually do something. Neoliberalism has led to a situation where people believe governments are incapable of doing anything about their lives because if the problems are caused by an invisible hand, well, then why bother? This is how people lose faith in democracy. So we must change the rules. The choices governments make to balance the power between employers and workers affects our pay, affects our job security. And when that balance is tilted too far towards the employer, it negatively affects our lives. We are the messenger. People can try and shoot us, I tell you that won't work, or we can work together to build a fairer, better, country to resurrect the fair go. We are sounding the alarm now. Yes, we've been pointing out that big business has too much power, 
but we're also providing solutions. Solutions that can deliver fair pay rises, better job security and a fairer Australia. We are ready to work with those in business and business leaders who also want a fairer and more equal country, instead of one driven with suspicion, division, inequality and anger. We are ready to build a wages system that works for everyone, that delivers productivity but also rewards and respects working people with fair pay rises that boost living standards. Cooperation is possible, but only when both sides are willing to admit we actually have a problem. Business can work with us to deliver fair pay rises. They can work with us for, to create greater job security. We want business to be successful. Working people want to be part of that success and to share its benefits. We want rules that mean good businesses giving workers a fair go are not undercut by unethical operators. We simply want to change the rules so working people get what has always been promised to working people in our country, a fair go. Thank you very much. Hello. Uh, Sally, thank you very much. Um, terrific speech. Um, You've spoken very eloquently about the, um, I should say to preface this, uh, Sally has agreed to take questions from the audience. Uh, our, our custom is that uh, preference is given to working journalists and then, if time permits, everybody else uh, has a chance to ask a question. Uh, could I ask uh, that when you do uh, uh, want to ask a question, watch out for the microphones which are around the room, have a mic first, and please identify yourself uh, at the outset. Uh, if I could start, uh, you've spoken very eloquently about the breakdown, the failures of our political system and, uh, and the incumbent politicians, uh, the incumbent government. Uh, there seems a, an air of inevitability that uh, Labor will be returned to power in the not too distant future. What is going to change, do you expect, under a Labor government in terms of these fundamental issues? And what in particular does the ACT expect from a Labor government? Uh, thanks a lot for that question. So, um, as many of you hopefully know, we've been campaigning for two years plus around um, better rights for working people. So, um, that campaign has been focused on addressing the really big problems that we have. And the three biggest problems, if I can explain it this way, is insecure work, which I've talked about, is low wage growth, and also about equality for women, because we still have a persistent gender pay gap in our country, along with um, other problems too. And so um, with the Labor Party, if they were to form government, and of course, you know, who knows what could happen over the next 14 or 15 weeks, they've already um, announced a whole lot of policies around these three areas. So I expect if they do get elected, they will be wanting to do uh, take action in all three areas. And that's because, in our discussions with them, first of all, they actually understand that there's a problem. They understand there's a problem with insecure work and low wage growth. They understand they can do something about it and they're prepared to do something about it, which has been a different starting point than with other um, political parties, because we've actually met with pretty much all the political parties now and put the same um, arguments to them and ask for you know commitments to also change the laws uh, should they be in a position to to vote to do so. Um, so I, I expect you know you can already see what's on the record in terms of their announcements that uh, that will be a focus of incoming Labor government if they do get elected. 
Okay, and are you satisfied with those positions so far, or...? Yeah, we are. Okay. Uh, question up the back. Angus Livingston from Australian Associated Press. Uh, thanks very much for the speech. Uh, the unions heavily uh, donate to Labor. The union workers show up in T-shirts at events and press conferences and, and knock on doors and that sort of thing. You obviously have invested a lot in getting uh, Labor into office here. How uh, strongly will you hold them to account on what you've asked from them in terms of wage growth, in terms of changing the rules? Uh, and if, if they do potentially uh, decide they're not going to do exactly what you want, how, how hard will you push on, on an incoming Labor government? Thank you, uh, Angus. Well, first of all, our campaign's an independent campaign. The T-shirts and the um, um, fundraising and most of all of that money is going towards the Change the Rules campaign, which is aimed at all political parties and it's aimed at also, um, you know, the general public too, around uh, the public support for um, the propositions we're putting. So um, it is an independent campaign and, and because of that, but not just because of that, um, Regardless of who gets elected, we'll be um, wanting to um, keep pressing uh, our uh, solutions. In terms of Labor, if they get elected, uh, absolutely we will be wanting to hold them to account. We're not um, putting all this effort into this because uh, of any other reason than wanting the actual laws changed so that you know, working people do have more secure jobs and we can turn around low wage growth. And so, um, you know, we will do everything within our power to make that so. Uh, yes, Ewan Hannan. Oh, hi, Sally. It's uh, Ewan Hannan from The Australian. I just wanted to ask you about the ALP National Conference last year and what was agreed to on workplace policy. Um, in relation to industry-wide bargaining, will unions continue to press for it to be made available if Labor wins power across the board? Or will you accept initially that it's only going to be available in certain industries? And also, how important is the right to take industrial action in support of those claims? Yeah, thanks for that question. So. In terms of multi-employer bargaining, which is actually a more helpful way of explaining it, um, we believe this is absolutely necessary in order to fix the wages problem that we've got, and Labor recognise that that's the case as well. And um, I'll tell you why. Enterprise bargaining's failing, and it's failing um, on the statistics. It's dropped 8% in eight years. It continues, it dropped another 1% in the latest statistics if it continues at that level. Um, the idea of collective, the, the type of collective bargaining we currently have will disappear. Awards will still have a really important role to play as well, and they're more sort of across industries, and so that will, that will stay the same. But where, and enterprise bargaining still has an important role to play as well, but there does need to be other options, and those other options, we've said um, consistently, and the Labor Party supports this, need to be available where enterprise bargaining isn't appropriate or isn't working in those sectors. And there's you know, several sectors where that's really obvious. Anywhere where um, uh, uh, there's a third party that really makes the decisions, where you're not really bargaining with the person who can make the decisions. So that's, of course, in funded services. That's also the case if you're at the bottom of a supply chain and you know, people you know, six, six levels up make the decisions about what your wages are and you can't negotiate with, with that particular person. A whole lot of um, small workplaces where it's just not efficient. It's not efficient for the employer. It's not efficient for the workers either. Also, there's uh, plenty of sectors now where 
uh, basically the, the, it's leading to a race to the bottom and enterprise only system. And so you see what happens is that a whole lot of good employers negotiate enterprise agreements with um, their workforces only to be undercut just on the issue of wages. So that's not, that is outside of those funded services that I've said. So our position is, and um, what you know, the Labor Party said in December is that, um, that you know, multi-employer bargaining should be an option um, where enterprise bargaining isn't appropriate and isn't working. In terms of industrial actions, so um, the option to take uh, industrial action as a last resort absolutely has to be available for multi-employer bargaining just as it is for enterprise bargaining. We already have a multi-employer bargaining stream, uh, but you can't take industrial action. Employers can multi-employer multi, um, bargain, but workers can't. And it's sort of part of the, the problem, in a way, of the, the failure of that system. Um, and it's not that anyone wants to take strike action, but if you don't have that as um, part of your um, uh, uh, bargaining tools, if you're, if you're the worker's side of the bargaining table, well, then you're in a much weaker bargaining position. So um, we would see that, uh, that it's absolutely necessary and right that, um, uh, that whenever you're bargaining that you should have um, that right as a last resort to withdraw your labour. Uh, Matt Dunkley. Sally, Matt Dunkley from The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I'll throw two as well, same as you and did. Um, two quite unrelated things, though. Um, you have on a number of occasions, and in your book as well, by the look of things, uh, invoked the legacy of Gandhi and Martin Luther King in explaining the conduct of the CFMEU, um, given the dignity that we would associate with people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King. I'm wondering on what level that comparison is not completely ludicrous. The other question I have relates to um, a statement of, uh, in the book too, but also I think it's current in some of your comments, um, talking about the AWU scandal and the way the media was tipped off there. You say that you note that the media hasn't uh, been filming raids at banks. Um, we would if we were tipped off, of course, but I wonder if the suggestion is that we've somehow given the banks a light go or what point you're trying to make about the media there. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Um, it's really unfortunate that some media outlets have tried to say that I've equated our strike laws with apartheid in South Africa. That's just not true. Uh, that it would be a stupid comparison and not one that I would make, just not. Um, the broader point about uh, people around the world having to sometimes break the laws of the time is really pointing out that you know sometimes governments aren't fallible and sometimes governments um, uh, you know that's necessary in order to move things forward. When I talk about those particular people you mentioned, I, the point I was making is that they all have trade union histories. I'm not comparing them to the CFMEU, so just want to make that clear. Um, the second question about I don't think you can call it AWU scandal. I call it the Macalia Cash scandal um, about. Um, I do think that there is a vastly different treatment of the trade union movement and the banks and the finance industry. If you think about um, the size of unions, not their membership, but the people who work for, 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 for unions, the amount of money involved, compared to the finance industry, well, they are huge. The Royal Commission into Unions went for two years. This went for half the time. It had less than half the amount of witnesses. What was it, 69 witnesses? It was over 200. You know, union officials had their phones tapped. Union officials were arrested with the cameras there, like happened to Johnny Lomax. Later, of course, you know, found to be innocent. 
all of these things happened and like and that's not what happened with the Banking Royal Commission. And so um, I do think that there's, and at the end of it, you know, the, the referrals off to the federal police for, for unions, and at the uh, end of this one, well, some referrals, but really saying, we're going back to the regulator, who is like heavily criticised anyway. So I do think that there's like one set of laws for the big end of town and another set of laws for us. I think that's, we feel as though that's a really um, stark thing. Um, and that what uh, Michaelia Cash did and the, the government did around um, the AWU had nothing to do with union governance. It all had to do with their ongoing obsession with hurting working people's organisations. And as I'm trying to say in the book and also in this speech, that's not good for the country. It's not good for the country to continually run down unions, working people's organisations, which was her you know, sole intention with all of that. Hi, Michelle Piney from Independent Australia. Thank you for your speech. Um, I just wanted to say, you mentioned earlier that the union movement was at the core of uh, the fair go in Australia, but of course the union movement has been greatly diminished um, over the past decades or so, and <laughs> certainly since the Howard government, uh, as you mentioned. Um, what measures um, would you like to see to, see, to have the move union movement restored to perhaps its heyday or at least uh, to see a growth uh, in that area to, to help uh, assist everyone. I think it's, <laughs> thank you. Um, I think it's important to start with um, how a lot of this decline happened, and it's for two reasons. Pretty large structural change in the economy in Australia, and you know what was a manufacturing you know, base we used to have, now more service-based economy, and that has happened fairly rapidly, and you don't organised sectors overnight, but besides that, these are different workplaces, they're small workplaces. The other thing we've seen, which I've talked about, is the massive growth of insecure work as well over that period of time, people having many different jobs during their life, very different time to back then. The other big thing to know is that what John Howard did is he took away um, the support that was given for the trade union movement, not a lot of it, but there was. In our awards, there was recognition of the role of unions. In our institutions, there was as well. And most countries um, do this, and they do this because they know it's important to have a strong trade union movement that's representing um, working people as because they accept that there's a power imbalance between employers and employees and that that's what's needed. And that if you don't um, support unions, you basically end up in the situation we are in Australia, which is also fairly unique, where we have to, um, every year, of course, there's a, the living wage increases, all of those things, everyone gets them, whether you're a union member or whether you're not a union member. And so that is, um, that is the current um, situation in Australia. So I don't think we can look back to the past and say we want things to be like they were in the past. It's not realistic. And also, we've got a different, um, uh, different types of jobs now, a different economy now. And so um, we, as a union movement, do need to um, change with the times, but also we need to make sure that we make um, critical uh, changes to the, the basis of, of work. So that goes back to the issue of better job security as well, um, also making sure that... Um, you know, people can effectively bargain and get together. At the moment, our laws are just too oppressive. They are too much of a wet blanket. Not so much on union growth, but just on the basic ability of workers to be able to stick together and achieve things. 
I mean, do you, sorry, just one, do you, um, do you see any basis for belief that the historical trend of decline in union membership will be reversed? Yes, uh, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But particularly, what are the reasons that are going to drive that, do you think? Um, I think that it's, there's a point where it won't go down any longer and I think we've reached that bottom and I also think that people have had enough. Like, I can feel it, I know, because also, obviously, unions tell us how many members they have all the time. So we know from talking to uh, affiliates, our unions, that people are seeing membership growth now. And they are because we are like leading this campaign and hope that we can be better in Australia and people are looking for that at the moment. Uh, Barry Donovan, um, long-standing member of the Melbourne Press Club. So uh, I thought it was appropriate to ask you how you feel the relationship is running uh, in 2019 and, uh, and looking ahead uh, between the ACTU and the major media organisations. Uh, you may have a particular attitude on Rupert and News Limited, but there's always possibility for improvements there. Um, Channel 9, of course, has now basically taken over the uh, Fairfax, which means the important papers of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And I'm just interested in how you feel uh, the ABC is under more pressure, of course, at the moment as well. I just wonder how uh, you feel the relationship is with the ACTU and the media in 2019, and if you're optimistic about uh, improvements in the coming future. So free and fair and independent media is really, really important in any democracy. Um, sort of goes without saying, but in an era of where you've got people like Donald Trump running down journalists and saying things like fake news, that also leads to a loss of faith in the, in the overall system. And um, we don't want to be part of that. And that I know working journalists um, believe um, in the in free and fair press, um, press and doing the best they can in the situations that they're in. And I just look at um, the lack of resources in a whole lot of you know media organisations with you know so-called di digital disruption. Um, how hard people end up working. It just amazes me sometimes when I um, you know go and do media. And I feel like the other day, for example. We had this um, Save Hakim rally in um, in in <laughs> Sydney, and I ended up doing the interview for Channel Nine. Like I was doing it with Craig Foster, and I thought, God, this is called outsourcing. Maybe I should bill them. Um, <laughs> so I think I think that a lot of media organisations are uh, under a lot of pressure, and we try and sort of have the best relationship we can. But also, um, obviously, a whole lot of media organisations are also um, owned by the big end of town, and that's that's just life. Uh, any more questions? And anyone in the room, welcome to ask a question if they wish. Uh, David Polden. Thanks, David. Uh, perhaps slightly following on from that last question in one sense, David Polden from Inter Ellison. Thanks, uh, Sally. Um, the, one of the uh, other areas of great interest to, the, to many of the people in this room is the, are the, the, the vast raft of uh, security laws that have been brought in the last few years and um, uh, notably the major parties have uh, had barely a, a um, cigarette paper between them mm. in relation to those laws. I wondered, are you aligned um, with their views on that or does the, um, uh, does the union movement have a different take on the way in which we've now got um, almost uh, 
in a sense, uh, uh, without knowing it, uh, to a stage of a surveillance state and a, a situation where journalists can be locked up simply for having information in their possession. Yeah, we're absolutely concerned about that. Um, we've, we've had that on record as well. Um, it's also another attack on democracy, a less free country where things like that happen. Um, it's been un unfortunate that that's the way things have been going and like, we'll continue to, to speak out against it. Could I ask one, one other, if I may, Mark, just one other question, uh, another important matter. Um, could I just get your, um, uh, uh, your current recommended game and your all-time classic, please? <laughs> um, you know what, it's funny, because when people read out the CV, I just say, oh, I don't have enough time to play computer games anymore. <laughs> That's how bad it is. Um, Red Redemption is the one I'm playing at the moment, and my all-time favourite is Civilization. Um, back to the issue of fairness, I, um, <laughs> seeing I know nothing about computer games, so I'll have to ask my son. Uh, I'll tell him that though, I think he likes civilization too, it's about as far as much as I know. Um, on the question of fairness, one of the key issues, uh, and I know this has been the position of the ACTU and a lot of the welfare groups, is that New Start is mm. abysmal. I think for a single person, it's under $40, which is incomprehensible. I think the position of the ACTU and the welfare groups is there should be an increase of $75 a week in that. Yeah. Uh, and yet I believe the position is that we have no indication from Labor that they're inclined to change that or to adopt that, yeah. that position. What can be done about that? So at the moment, neither political party has you know, announced that they'll do anything about that. You're right. Um, we join with um, the BCA and the ACOS um, saying that uh, New Start is, is absolutely appalling. It is humiliating. It leaves people in poverty. Um, we see working people as you know the bigger group of working people that many of us are going to be out of work at a particular time. And by humiliating people and leaving them in poverty, we're not. Um, it's immoral, but also we're not assisting in actually people getting jobs. So um, we're going to continue to advocate that position until New Start is raised. Uh, yes, one more at the back. I'm going to swing it again. Um, just curious to know, given uh, the unions have a really important role in the governance of industry funds and the partnership with businesses, that did, does the union member have a role, uh, have a uh, sorry, an opinion formed yet on this idea of the one fund for life? This idea that you get your fund and that's the only time you get defaulted in. Have you had a chance to have a think about oh, those recommendations from the Royal yeah, Commission? Yeah, at the moment we're sort of carefully going through those recommendations and uh, I think next week, because uh, some of the, um, the government's looking to respond to it as, as well, we'll be coming out with you know, our views on all of those things. Thanks. Okay, any more? All right, I think uh, if uh, we've exhausted questions, um, we might get an early cut, so thank you, thank you very much, Sally. Yes, thanks, guys. Uh, before you go, uh, I'd just like to make a small presentation. <laughs> Nothing you'll need to declare on pecuniary interest backgrounds. Uh, it's a copy of our book, uh, Media Legends, which is uh, profiles of all of the Victorian Foundation members of the Australian Media Hall of Fame, which is a big project that the Melbourne Press Club has been running in recent years. So some great characters in there, including uh, the man who founded the Australian Journalist Association. So, yeah, first secretary. Thank you again, Sally. This is the Melbourne Press Club event series. Thanks to Jazz Heart from Free Music Archive for our theme music. Please give us a visit at melbournepressclub.com to find out about future speaker events.